Hi, and welcome to Embark, where we talk about change and what's next. And I don't know how this fits in, actually. I just really love this person. Marin Multobano is an opera singer, business coach, and writer whose voice appears on not one, not two, but three Grammy award-winning albums. When live performances disappeared during the pandemic, Marin got busy and started to focus on the online world. Writing, producing, premiering a one-woman show called The Bodice Ripper Project as an interactive digital performance at the Philadelphia Fringe Festival. That show, along with a podcast of the same name, became an exploration of sexuality, feminism, and the journey to self-empowerment through the lens of romance novels. A graduate of Tufts University and New England Conservatory of Music, My Neck of the Woods, Marin has sung at Carnegie Hall in New York City, Walt Disney Concert Hall in L.A., multiple theaters in Europe, and even performed on stage with the Rolling Stones. And we're going to have to hear more about that story. She is passionate about uplifting and amplifying new and diverse voices in classical music, which has fueled her work as a business coach for musicians. We have so many things to get to today, Marin, but let's get busy and introduce Marin Multobano. Hello, lovely. Hi. Yeah, there's I know there's so much there. I, I, I try to write those things so that there's lots of questions. I have so <laughs> many questions. Wait a minute. First of all, I really do need to know the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was on stage with them twice actually. Well, I mean, it was it was the same show, you know, it was like Thursday and Saturday or something like that. But um I sing with a new music choir called The Crossing in here in Philadelphia and we were asked to be a part of uh the Stones show when they came to Philadelphia. It was about let's see oh gosh, almost 7 years ago now. Um and we sang you can't always get what you want. And, uh, and it was amazing. It was, it was really, I, I can't, I have, well, first of all, I, w- I had to sign a four page NDA. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but what I can say is that I, I had the time of my life. I'd never seen so many people in one place uh, looking at me, you know, my face was up on a big, huge jumbotron. And I mean, Mick Jagger looked straight at me. I actually have a, a, a screenshot of where he's he's pointing. And I think he's pointing at somebody in the audience, but it looks like he's pointing straight at my boob. <laughs> I mean, he may be because of that whole bodice ripping thing that you have going right. on. I love that story. I love rock yeah. and roll. I, f- I sound like Joan Jett right now, but I really do. I spent many years in radio. So listening to the Stones, playing the Stones. Watching the stones, of yeah. course. Well, and you know, it's it's just so funny because it's like it was their fiftieth uh, year, you know, tour kind of thing. Fifty years, fifty years, right? And my husband, of course, was like so jealous that I was there, and he's like, you know, oh, he actually gave me one of his Stones shirts to wear to the rehearsal, you know, and um, and he couldn't get a ticket. That was it was all completely sold out. He could not get a ticket. I think you could he could probably have gotten a scalp ticket, but that he wasn't quite going to go. There that far but uh yeah we got to see the entire show because we were at the end the encore was uh you can't always get what you want so we got to see the entire show from the very 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 top of the stadium one very small note is that um so uh smoke rises and especially certain kinds of smoke was very 
very prevalent in the air, um, more so on Saturday night than Thursday. So I believe, I believe I did the second performance with a little bit of a contact high. (laughs) Probably more than a little bit. You sounded so good that night. (laughs) So anyway, but so going from rock and roll to opera, because you are, Mm -hmm. in fact, an opera singer, why opera? What made you turn to opera? Well, you know, I started off, both my parents are musicians. And uh, my mom is a violinist, and she started me playing the violin when I was three years old. So very yeah. ambitious. <laughs> I know, I know. And um, my dad is a jazz trumpet player, so I had a classical musician on one hand and a jazz musician on the other. And um, and I, I think the classical side kind of won a little bit. Uh, when I was seven years old, I joined the San Francisco Girls Chorus. I grew up in the in the Bay Area. And they had this program where the kids, like the girls, if you were under five feet, that was, you had to be like only five feet and under, you could be a part of the children's chorus in the opera. And so I got to be in all sorts of operas at a very, very young age. And I just got hooked. I really did. The stories, the sounds, the drama, you know, it was it was pretty much everything. So I, I think it was sort of a foregone conclusion from like age seven or eight. Did you know at the time, like, hey, I sound good. And actually, it's funny because I got a, um, I got a solo when I was about 10, I think I was 10 years old. I was in an opera called Verter, uh, which is uh, based on a a novel and a Goethe novel. In that opera, the main character, the main woman, she's got uh, all of these. She's like, you know, the oldest sister of like, I think, you know, seven kids. Right. So she's taking care of all these kids. I was one of them. And at the very beginning, you know, the kids sing this little cute little song. And then the, uh, you know, somebody comes along and and hands out food. And so the, the kids one by one get up, take the food and sing Merci. And that's it, you know, and they walk away. And that was my one solo, my little tiny solo. And I got billing in the program with my name and little asterisk next to it saying San Francisco Opera Debut. And uh, I still have the program. (laughs) But you know what? It's funny because I got I, I think I got that role or that solo because I had learned that you actually just have to sing out. It's like a gypsy, you know, sing out, Louise. You just have to sing out. And if you are scared at all, your your voice isn't going to carry. Um, so I don't know if it was like good or bad, but I certainly was loud. That's kind of like a metaphor for life too. If like you can't be heard, you know, how do you get recognized? Exactly. Yeah, it was a it was a good lesson to learn really early on in life. Absolutely. Sure. You know, I want to fast forward because I want to hear everything yeah. about you. But I have been to opera and enjoy it. But it's not something that you hear in the, you know, the um, typical discourse. And so what are people's misconceptions of opera? What are the myths around it? What kind of crazy questions do you get? I know that's a little bit to unpack oh right now, but let's let's start <laughs> with like, what are the misconceptions? Misconceptions about opera. The first thing is that it's difficult. Like I'm not going to understand it. You know, if, if you go see an opera, chances are you will understand what's going on. Cause there's very, it's actually, most of the plots are very, very small, like um, simple and it's all about, it's basically either 
you know, a, a love triangle where, you know, the two men love a woman and then somebody dies or everybody dies, you know, or <laughs> there's a lot of death mm -hmm. in opera or, you know, there's also comic opera as well. So, you know, it's, it's like watching your favorite slapstick comedy, except being sung. Uh, so it, I think it actually uh, bucks a lot of people's ideas. Most people think opera is just this big woman with horns singing, you know, I mean, that's like the, the typical sort of Brunhilde Wagner, you know, uh, thing. And there are very few people who can sing that role, by the way. So, you know, most people who are opera singers are just there. They just have big voices and they can fill a hall and we're normal people just like you. <laughs> I wouldn't call me normal, <laughs> but go ahead. But the other thing that I notice whenever I'm like in a cocktail party or something and they, you know, oh, what do you do kind of thing? And I say, oh, I'm an opera singer. Usually the the next thing is, oh, an opera singer. How how exciting, how exotic, you know? And, uh, and yeah, sure. You know, uh, if you want to believe that I live my days with like, you know, jewels and getting escorted all over the place, you can go ahead and believe that. But I promise you, my life is not quite that interesting. I mean, you have a very dramatic background, I will say. But is this true? <laughs> very colorful. What? Yes. But one thing that is not a myth is that I do believe most opera singers are dramatic people. So you kind of have to be, right? I mean, to live in that environment. I, I would say, like being an actor, most of the actors, yeah. I know, they're actually, most of them are introverts. You know, they do have this flair for the dramatic, even if they don't live it in their lives all the time. They really know how to find it. Yeah. Exactly. And mine it. They know how to like take people in their lives who are the most dramatic and be able to somehow channel all of that. Yeah, it's definitely the same for opera singers. What are your favorite operas? Okay. Oh, it's like it's like asking me to to choose a child, you know? Uh <laughs> Sophie's choice. Right, right, exactly. Okay. Favorite opera of all time is The Marriage of oh. Figaro. And I know that that some people who know me might be like, well, that's such a, a safe choice. It's Mozart. Everybody knows Mozart, whatever. No, I'll tell you. It's, first of all, from beginning to end, the story is complex. It's funny. It's uh, tongue in cheek. It's farce. It pokes fun at the, at the man. And the music is incredibly beautiful. It's I would say probably Mozart's best work. And, you know, I, it's too bad he didn't live very long because I believe that he probably would have gone on to create stuff that was even more complex than that. But this really, it shows a depth and breadth of, of character. People who are desperately in love with each other, but for you know, these other, the Count and Countess, for example, are in love with each other. But the Count also just can't get over being like in charge and wanting to stoop everybody in sight, you know? So, <laughs> hence the farce. Anyway, I could go on and on. But yeah, Mozart's Marriage of Figaro is my my hands down okay, favorite. So the, yeah. a good recommendation for anybody who might want to start, like for people who do not go to opera, don't get it. Here's a good starting point. Marin's Choice. Absolutely. What other genres? We know that you have sung some 
rock because you sang with the Stones. <laughs> um, what, what other types of music do you like to sing? I mostly sing new music. And when I say new music, people don't really know what that means. Um, I guess you could kind of say contemporary classical, but that doesn't really say, that's not exactly it either. It's all the music that is sort of quote unquote classical or, or classical based uh, that has been written in the last 20 to 30 years. So that's what I consider new. I love performing world premieres. I love it when composers write music for me because then it's just, they have my voice in mind and I can, you know, like I, I can just dive right into it. It's so That's easy. the best case scenario. I mean, I do a lot of writing and I used to do a lot of advertising writing, but I would work with people and I knew not just the way they spoke, but I knew the rhythms of it. I knew the certain expressions, the colloquialisms, the tics, and it, it really feeds. It's like that becomes the whole person. Exactly. Yeah. And so I love hanging out with composers. I cultivate a lot of friendships with composers. So who are some of the rising, like for people who say, well, wait a minute, you know, if there's a whole um, genre of new classical music, who should I look for? Who should I listen for? Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's like a whole, within new music, there's different genres, right? So so it's just like looking at modern art. Some of that stuff is going to look like a like a Jackson Pollock painting, right? There's all the splashes everywhere. Some of it's going to look like, um, you know, just geometric shapes. And, and some of it is going to look like photo, photorealism, you know? The music is the same way. So it kind of depends on what you like. Uh, some of my favorite composers right now are Ayana Woods, uh, she's an up-and-coming Black composer who's, whose voice is very badly needed in the classical industry. Ted Hearn uh, is has been kind of cutting edge for about 10 years now, and uh, I, he's always, always has some, some really amazing things to say. Who else? Ooh, Melissa Dunphy. She and I have collaborated on several things, including the Bodice Ripper Project, actually. And she is one of these composers that really, she asks questions and then formulates a piece that could only have come from that conversation. She listens so carefully and then creates music that works just perfectly. So I would say those three just sort of top of mind for sure. I wanted to follow up because you mentioned, you know, a black composer mm -hmm. of of classical music. And that's I mean, you don't hear those words strung together in sentences very often. Yeah. How has Black Lives Matter figured into opera, classical music? Because yeah. now we see in literature and film. And some music, of course, you know, hip hop's been around for like forty years, mm -hmm. but but this is this feels like new territory. Tell me what's happening with that, man. It is there's a reckoning that's happening in the classical music industry. For far too long, there have been calls for more diverse programming, people of color programming, not just composers but performers. And, and bringing people of color up into the spotlight for decades now, even though there have been many calls for it, the big institutions have resisted it. And there have been a lot of reasons for it. Um, and 
To be honest, I think a lot of it has had to do with white fragility. But frankly, the way that the classical music industrial complex has has become it's it, the the behemoth that it has become its roots are in uh modern western music right so it's very white centric extremely white centric and so look i i have no problem saying that mozart was an amazing composer or or bach or brahms all great really wonderful very very talented people all dead white dudes you know, I mean, they're all dead white dudes. They really, really are, <laughs> <laughs> or old ones. Yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. and I I think that there's you know uh, last year or two years ago was the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's uh, birth or something like that, and so everybody started programming Beethoven, and I, I was thinking to myself, look, look, uh, Beethoven's great, but there are so many more people that we could be you know highlighting and. Um, there, there have been a lot of composers of color over the centuries um, that have been lost. Their, their works have been lost through time because of white supremacy, because nobody's, nobody listened to it then. And, you know, nobody's listening to it now. One really good example is this man named um, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. He was a contemporary of Mozart's and many people called him the black Mozart. Well, they, they call him the black Mozart now. He was half black and his his mother was a slave. His father was a nobleman and he was born in the Caribbean, but he moved to France. His father gave him this huge education. He was composer. He was a, a sword fighter. He was, he fenced and, uh, and an intellectual. And not only that, he was like a fashion icon too. So all of these things, and we only have just a very small bit of his music left because nobody really cared to hold on to it, you know? Mm. And I, you know, you should look at, look him up. You can hear some of his music. It's good, you know? So can you think about all of those other people just like him who didn't have the noble father who was able to get him out into society and get people to notice him? Same with women, you know? Yeah. Well, it's all access. I mean, we we see it's all opportunity, no matter, you know, what your color, Mm -hmm. it's your circumstance. And often that is dictated by your color, you know, depending on where you live, but it it is that access and the opportunity. Yeah. For me, it's really important now that I'm thinking about these things, now that, you know, Black Lives Matter, all of the stuff that was happening last year really opened my eyes in a major way. And I started doing a lot of uh, self-reflection, educating myself. And I realized now, you know, I've been part of the problem and I want to fix that. And I really want to, I want to amplify the voices of more diverse people, especially in the classical music community. And you can see using the, and I'm, I love film and watching some of the movies this year because I've had a lot of time to <coughs> be around my television. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing all the different cultures, whether mm-hmm. the actors, whether it's a writer or a director, to see that uh, both the diversity of experience, but the commonality of the experience too. To me, it's offensive to say, we're going to show you something about the Black experience or the Asian or the white experience. It's like, that doesn't, like, tell me the story about people and what unifies us. And they happen to be this color or this culture. 
And that just enriches it. It's like, okay, I learned that there are some differences, but fundamentally we have those same feelings. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are all the same at the beginning, you know, at at the very basic, you know, blood level. However, it's also, I love to celebrate our differences and, and I love to learn about new cultures and to learn about, uh, what was your experience like? How do you view the world? What is that lens like? You know, and let's, let's look at this through many different lenses so that instead of just one, you know, color, it's, it's a a prism. And I think that that makes the world a better place. Do you see art in general, and perhaps music specifically playing a a large role in unifying people just a little bit more, more, more than before, because I think it's always been a little bit of a unifying force? Yeah, I do. I do. I think there's a, a, a huge possibility for this to happen. Um, I do think that, especially in the classical world, a lot of the bigger institutions do need to step up and they need to own what they've been doing so far to uphold white supremacy. And I'm not saying that as a, you guys are all bad. I'm not saying it that way. I'm just saying it in the, we all have to look at ourselves and really take a deep, very good look at ourselves and find out ways that we can change and become better and evolve. And I think that there's so much opportunity for us to do that. I'm really, really optimistic about it. I am too. And what's interesting is how many of my white acquaintances, friends are saying things like, I feel so guilty because of my white privilege. And we are the color we are as an accident of birth, all of us. So let's just all lighten up. (laughs) (laughs) Can we lighten up and just be in the same room and, you know, not kill each other? Yeah, I'd like that. That's like base camp. Can we just do that? So anyway, enough of the soapbox. I want to hear about bodice ripping because that, <laughs> I mean, really, that's that's really why you're here. Tell me how. So you have a podcast, yes. the Bodice Ripper Project. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. It all started. It all started several years ago when I was backstage at the opera. We had a really long time backstage. Um, I, I believe uh, the opera was Verdi's Otello, and the chorus comes in at the very beginning, and then there's a long wait, and then we come in at the end. So when you're backstage sort of doing nothing, uh, the, this is what choristers do backstage. They sit down, they either read a book or some people, you know, if they're in school to do homework or uh, some people bring in games like uh, Bananagrams or cards or Uno or something, something like that. And I don't know what got into me, but I I started writing a romance novel, like a, a little romance scene based on, actually it was based on a picture that, you know, somebody took snapped backstage. It was like, oh, this is a perfect romance novel cover. Let's write the book, you know? And it was very tongue in cheek and I read it aloud backstage and everybody loved it. So the next opera, I did the same thing and everybody loved it. So I now have this, uh, they're very small, very short. It's only as much as I can write while I'm backstage, but that's great because it shortened to the point. And I had all of these stories and somebody said, well, you know, you should turn this into a show. And I thought that's a great idea. Let me think about that. I was going to make a one woman show. It was going to premiere in September of 2020 and then COVID hit. And I 
was not sure if I should just bag the whole project, if I should wait until the pandemic was over, what should I do? But I finally decided to go ahead and switch and try to make it digital instead of like the cabaret that it was going to be originally. As I developed it more for the digital thing, I created something that I didn't think I was going to create. I delved a little bit more deeply into my own story, why it is that I like romance novels. And it turns out that I really have a strong bond with romance novels because when I was 12, I was um, I was sexually abused by my mother's boyfriend. And thank you. And after that happened, I just started just really reading these novels. And I think what I was trying to find was something in them, these heroines that had spunk, who really stood up for something, who believed in themselves and were okay with their own sexuality. These people, these couples that actually overcame adversity and ended up together, it made me excited to fall in love for the first time, you know? And and I really think that that was a healing thing for me, reading romance novels. And to be honest, by writing this very vulnerable piece into my show, I began to heal myself again, sort of another layer of healing. So I wrote this song. I wrote a poem that was turned into a song thanks to Melissa Dunphy. And I I sang it and in singing it really got a lot of the 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 pain. It it just it completely transmuted into something different, something really beautiful. So I'm very grateful that I got a chance to do it during the pandemic when I had time to really focus on what was important. The podcast came out of that. It was it was sort of like, well, I've got all these extra stories. So I'm going to have this time and, you know, celebrate that thing that was really healing for me and hope that it can heal other people too. That's what's so incredible about creativity, that it really does have that power. I think Carrie Fisher had said something like, take your broken heart and yeah. and, and make art. I, I, that's paraphrasing. She said it much better than I. But it there is something to owning that experience and then transforming it into something really beautiful. Yeah. And true. Exactly. I, I highly recommend it for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so we're so we're talking about heaving bosoms. Mm-hmm. We're talking about opera. We're yes. talking about romantic novels, and so there's there's a little bit of a theme here. Yeah, <laughs> I like I like a good bodice, and I like to you know I like my own bosoms to be heaving. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, speaking of heaving bosoms, I mean it takes so much stamina to sing to sustain singing over time. Opera, that's a whole other level of stamina. Like, how do you train for that? What do you do? Do you have a daily regimen for when you are, you know, in a show or have a some kind of a, an appearance? That's a really good question. And you know what? Not very many people ask me that. That's great. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. Um, the, the answer is yes. Opera singers are athletes. We really are. And we have to be able to train ourselves, train our body to withstand certain amount of pressure, lung capacity is a big thing. So, you know, breathing exercises, I'm actually working with uh, the, a trainer who is very 
focused on not just lung capacity, but oxygen efficiency within the blood. And yeah, it's great. It's amazing having to do some of these breath and it's not just breathing exercises. It's also physical warmups, different ways of like placing your body to max up, to remind your body where all the air goes. You know, I'll give you an example, a downward dog, the, the yoga position is a really wonderful position for lung expanding lung capacity. So what my trainer has me do is I go from plank to downward dog, back to plank to downward dog about 10 times. And each time I have to breathe, I have to have a nice big breath uh, out. And then on the in, or sorry, on the inhale, uh, I'm stationary. On the exhale, I move between positions. That is, that's like your typical yoga class. Yeah. <laughs> like every every movement is on is on breath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really amazing. And it, it probably also calms down your central nervous system too, because so much of it is just the state of relaxation. It is. And you know, it's funny that I you mentioned this because I just finished a recording project of a work that's actually called Sila, which is the Inuit word for breath. And it is a talk about modern, modern music. Okay. It's built on, <laughs> it's built on the, the mathematical principles of sound. So, you know, one person sings one note and then another person sings the mathematical, like the sound uh, doesn't work the same way as like the piano, like the actual sound vibrations are they vibrate in different ways. Anyway, I I don't want to get too complicated, but basically my job as one of the singers in this piece was to simply sing one note over and over and over again and make sure that it was exactly the same note with exactly the same amount of air pressure, which is a lot of concentration. And you know what helped? Breathing exercises. So there you go. I, it is that, and we, you know, we always forget it, but remember to breathe yeah. because it it does help with with everything. And people who look at performers, people in the arts, and they're you know football players or hockey players, basketball, they don't understand like ballet, singing, particularly opera, acting. That takes so much physical vitality. Yeah, really being in shape. Exactly. It's crazy. Now you you talked about being coached, but you also do coach creatives. And I have to say, as a creative, it's like, I'm not like, I just want to be brilliant and like create. I can't sell myself (laughs) like, like creatives are like the worst at promoting themselves or marketing or treating things like a business or balancing their checkbook or, you know, any or whatever their bank account. But right? Exactly. Exactly. So what is it that you do? How how can you help me? Well, you know, I can help in, in many different ways. The main thing that I do is I help people who have ideas for performance projects, uh, but don't really know where to start. I help them go through that process of producing their own shows or producing their own albums or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so if you don't have any business background, but you have an idea, I can help with that. Um, because really all it is, is just learning little 
tricks along the way, uh, how, how to balance your budget, you know, uh, how to ask for money. That's a big one. Um, and, and how to ask people to, uh, show up to your show. And a lot of that comes down to mindset. That's really where a coach can help. Honestly, my coach helps me with mindset. So I, I feel like I can only, all I can do is return the favor by paying it forward. Absolutely. I was just thinking of that phrase as you said it. We think so much alike, girl. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Now you are you are getting back to because you were doing things virtually, but you are getting back to doing live stuff. That's exciting. I am. Although, you know, it looks a little different. Everybody I I was just asked to perform a concert version of Tosca, the opera Tosca. I'm very excited about that. But we will be outside in, in an outdoor theater. Um, everybody's going to be wearing masks. So having to sing in a mask, that's a new experience. And I'm, I'm practicing with my mask and I'm just trying to get myself used to the feeling of this thing on my face and not worrying about having to um, take too many breaths or uh, how, how am I going to be heard? Actually, what's really funny is those masks, the, the singer's masks, you can totally be heard just fine and you can breathe just fine in them. It, there are a lot of worries that I had before I started using them uh, that I don't have anymore. No, that's really, I and I had thought about like how much breath do you have to use to compensate because you're a little bit muzzled there. Right, right. Well, the singer's masks actually have like a little bit of a space in front of the mouth. So you're not having to, I know with like a regular cloth mask, sometimes when you breathe in the the, the cloth almost like sticks to your mouth or sticks to your nose. Um, with the singer's masks, it's got a little bit of a frame. So that doesn't happen. You don't have to have that feeling of like, <gasps> you know. Um, so you can breathe normally in it which is great. The other worry that I was having um, about singing in a mask was, well, will anybody be able to understand me? I've got a, a couple of pieces of cloth between me and the, you know, the audience. And actually, depending on the material, but most singers masks have already, they've thought of this, right? You can be heard just fine. Your, your diction maybe needs to be slightly more pronounced, but not that much more pronounced. So it's amazing. I'm I'm very, very pleased with what's out there. What this pandemic has wrought in terms of new products and, and, and just the innovation around it has been crazy. Just the innovation in the types of masks that one can wear now. Is, is yours fancy? Do you have like a fancy opera mask? Here, I'll show it to you. Hold on. Thank you. <laughs> we'll need to um, narrate a visual on this. Too. Yeah, I know. Okay, so um, you, you're you're going to have to narrate here. Hold on, let me just make sure I've got it the right. So Marion is trying right on her opera mask. Let's see what happens next. Oh wow, it's a little bit more boxy. Does that help amplify the sound? I think it does a little bit. I I, I would say it it kind of looks a little bit like a duck bill. Um, you know, so, so it may help amplify the sound. It, it could be that that shape kind of helps. Um, but the thing that it does the most is it provides ample room for the air that's coming out to just kind of circulate and then recirculate that kind of thing. The thing is when we sing air comes out of our lungs at 
a really, really high force, high velocity. And um, this is one of the reasons why with singers, instead of six feet away, you should be standing 20 feet away. Yes, <laughs> there's a lot, exactly. of, a lot of viscera happening there. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, so this, the, the mask helps with that for sure. <laughs> All right. Cause you can see it like when you go to theater and you're sitting in one of the front rows, it's, yeah. I, I need like a splatter cloth because <laughs> yes. it's intense. You're doing your job. I mean, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's the price of going to theater and be cultured. You do a few things, right? So do you. So, yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, we all do. That's the, that's kind of the creative life. But what do you see going forward? What do you see going forward for like the Bodice Ripper project? You know, what type of what type of feedback are you getting about that? What's is it like? Do you have a little, like a little cult of people who walk around with their bodices ripped or? <laughs> not not yet, but you know, I'm working on that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so the podcast is still running. Um, I am alternating stories that I've told with uh, interviews with creatives such as yourself. I think that it's really important as I'm exploring this genre, you know, I, as you said at the beginning, the Bodice Ripper Project is an exploration of sexuality, feminism, and the journey to self-empowerment through the lens of romance novels. And for me, that means talking to other creatives and finding out what that creative process is like and what it is to rip your bodice metaphorically, you know, letting your true self out, let it all hang out. What does that feel like? How exposed do you feel? And having those kinds of conversations, I think is is a part of my own journey as an artist. So that's sort of where we are right now. I'm I'm also working on uh, Bodice Ripper Project 2.0 live show. We'll see. I I'm having monthly meetings with my director. We just had one last week that just set my brain in a completely new direction. I'm very excited. So I, I have no idea. Like fingers crossed. I have no idea if it's actually even going to be called the Bodice Ripper Project, but it's going to be something amazing. That I do know. Well, promise me that bodices will be involved. I, I think I mean, there have to be, yes. Before we wrap up, I have to ask you, what is your favorite romance novel? Oh, my God. You have one. Oh, that one's harder than, than, the, uh, than the opera. Okay. All right, top three. Oh, okay. I'm going to give you a series. Or top three today, because for me, it will change sometimes depending on me. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, right now, I, I have to say my favorite series is Stephanie Lawrence, the Sinster series. Um, I am big in, into historical romance. I love the Regency era stuff, things like Bridgerton. I actually read the all of the Bridgerton books long, long ago before the Netflix show ever happened. And I like Stephanie Lawrence, the Sinster series. And it is... Uh, very similar to the Bridgertons where it follows a family and basically each person in the family gets paired up throughout each book. That's always fun. Plus what what I love about historical fiction or period movies, any of that stuff is the fashion. Yes. Like you don't see anybody oh, yes. in yoga pants and a sweatshirt. No. Or their fuzzy it's slippers. Exactly. And this is the the whole thing about the bodice is I love the historical trappings of repression. I think I think there's something 
really interesting about that and about um about pulling that apart and and finding and 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 ha- knowing that like your passion is so strong that it it just cannot cannot be held back by that bodice right. it just cannot be just can't, so. can't contain that bosom nope <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm all for bringing back gloves and hats love those yes it's like why what what are we doing here i mean i, I don't want to be in a corset but no. like a little i don't know like upping the fashion game after covid is is one of my life goals actually I think that's a great idea. Although I I agree, probably no corsets. I, I actually, you know, I've gotten used to not wearing bras anymore. So um, I don't really want to wear those <laughs> after COVID. <laughs> a year of just like letting things be free. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the world is ready for that, but we'll see soon enough. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I have loved this. Thank you so much, Marin. Thank you. I have loved it as well. It is always enjoyable to talk to you, Liz. This is just so wonderful. Marin, can we can we play another day? Yes, let's do it. Thanks. Take care. All right. You can find out more about Marin's brilliant opera career and the Bodice Ripper Project at MarinMontalbano.com. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about Embark. It's available at EmbarkThePodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.